Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Welcome to the Master Mix Podcast. My name is Mike Indivina, and thanks so much for hanging out with me today. Today, my guest is Pete Weiss, who is a New England-based producer, engineer, mixer, and musician. He is a former co-owner of Zippa Studio, as well as Verdant Studio. And in this chat, we cover a lot of great topics, including working with track limitations and also owning a retreat style studio, which is one of the things that Pete did with Verdant Studio. And we get all into, you know, the concept of Opening up a studio in a place that seems remote, that's far away from big cities, and how to find clients with that. Another thing about that studio in particular was that it was an open concept studio. So the the live room and the control room were in the same room. So, you know, how does someone deal with that kind of stuff? Because if you're a home studio musician, you're likely dealing with a lot of the same problems that Pete would have been dealing with at that studio. So I think you're going to find a lot of what we have to talk about here very, very relevant and very helpful. So with that said, let's just jump right into it. Pete Weiss, thank you so much for being on the Master Mix podcast. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. Thank you. For people who might not be familiar with you or your background, can you give us that story of how you got into music and ultimately into production? Uh, sure. Uh, I, I was in high school in the 80s. And during that time, uh, with some friends, got interested in learning how to um play rock music. <laughs> so we sort of, we helped each other learn. Uh, none of us had really any training. We, we kind of knew a few chords on the guitar. And uh, long story short, we started a couple of pretty mediocre, you know, garage bands. Um, but we had a lot of fun. We learned a lot. And this was around the time, you know, we mostly like practiced in my parents' basement or someone else's garage or whatever. But this was around the time that the first affordable four track recorders came out. Do you remember the, um, I don't know if you're <laughs> of, the, of the age where you remember this, but the Fostex X15. I had a, my, my first recorder was a four track cassette recorder, but I can't, it was a Fostex too, but I can't remember uh -huh. the exact model it was offhand, but yeah, I remember those. Yeah. So there was an ad campaign, um, which is pretty funny in retrospect uh, in um, some of the magazines that, that uh, showed a picture of the Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band album and then right next to it was um, the, the Fostex X15, if I recall correctly. And the the ad copy was something to the effect of, you know, four track mastery, you know, four, four track uh, masterpiece. So, you know, within your reach now, you know. Um, so my friend Paul and I um, actually pooled our money together and we bought a Fostex X15 recorder and we found a couple of mics and we started experimenting and learning Um basically how to record, you know, gain staging, signal flow, uh, noise reduction was a big thing, um, bouncing tracks together. Um, so we kind of just got our, you know, jumped in and, and learned by doing. And um, I found I was more interested in that to a degree than, than actually playing the music at the time. That would change later. But um, so I pursued it a little more, a little more thoroughly when I went to college. I, I uh, had an internship at a at a recording studio that at the time was um, a pretty high quality eight track recording studio, which doesn't, which sounds pretty modest by today's standards. But it, back around 1984, this was it was common for um, studios, you know, really nice commercial studios to 
only be eight track or 16 track. Um, 24 track was like, you know, super fancy at the time and super expensive. Um, so that was great. Um, I, I, there I learned more about mic placement and different types of mics and, um, what compression was and parametric EQ, all the stuff that wasn't really part of the four track cassette world. So that expanded my horizons. And after that, I, I saved up money and I bought my own half inch eight track recorder and I, and a, and a small 12 channel, uh, mixing console and some other gear. And I basically started recording bands. I would take this equipment to their rehearsal spaces and record them in their space. It was a huge pain in the neck in retrospect, <laughs> considering <laughs> how you could do that now with something, you know, basically your phone. Um, so it was, a, it was a huge effort to do this, but I learned a lot and made some interesting recordings. Keyword interesting. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Anyway, I'll, I'll accelerate this timeline, but basically um, the ball was rolling. I, I got a, a regular day jobs after college, but I kept um, recording people as a, as a hobby on the side and eventually started a recording studio called Zippa Recording in Boston. And I started it with the, there were a series of partners that I had and the, the longest partner I had there was Brian Charles. And he was running Zippa up until last year. And the, uh, tragically the place burned down. Uh, there was a terrible fire. So Brian is in the midst of, of rebuilding a version of Zippa somewhere. Um, but in 2004, I left Zippa, uh, peacefully with, <laughs> there was no blow up or anything. Brian and I remained great friends and strategic allies. And, uh, I, I wanted to try, um, building and running a retreat type studio out basically in the country. Um, but real estate was pretty cheap in Vermont at the time. It still, it still is. Uh, and basically took out a loan and converted a, an, an old barn into a single room recording studio. Uh, I, by single room, I just mean like an open concept. There's no, it's just a big open space. And it's like a, a big deluxe workshop. Um, I was intrigued with that style of recording. Um, there's no, you know, glass, no real control room, not a lot of separation. Um, and that offered a lot of sort of vibey, creative um, possibilities. So moving ahead, I ran that from 2004 till, um, till basically the beginning of the pandemic and sold the property, sold the recording studio there and have actually been working out of this space that you can see now, which is my apartment. Um, and I'm, I'm doing mostly mixing and mastering now. Um, people send me tracks, um, to work on here. So when I do, uh, production and engineering and recording bands these days, I actually work out of other studios now. That makes sense. I think, I feel like that's the way a lot of bigger engineers are, are moving these days. It's like slowly getting down to like the, the home studio space and then rent it out whenever you need to like record some drums or something where you need to make a lot of noise. Right. A little bit. Yeah. And honestly, I don't, I, 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 I enjoyed um, running those studios over the years and I learned so much and I made so many, you know, good friends and I thought I'd, I think I made some really cool records. Um, but looking back, I'm not sure I was the greatest business person, honestly, <laughs> you know, running, running something like that. Um, so I like how I'm working now. It's a smaller kind of thing. And I'm actually doing better now with, um, 
you know, lower overhead, fewer, you know, less maintenance, really. Um, I don't really have clients come here because it's my home. Um, and um, sometimes I get complaints about that. But honestly, most of the time, I, I think I, I actually do more efficient and better work with the client not here. It's so easy these days to just go back and forth with uh, mixed revisions and master revisions. And, you know, it's 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 pretty seamless. Of course. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I feel like um, it, this is also a topic that's come up a few times on the podcast of people who are starting to do more and more, or sorry, less and less attended sessions and as as a way of just kind of working more efficiently. And everyone's realizing it it is more efficient that way. And it's also, I mean, there's something to be said too for the the artists themselves just like listening in an environment that they're comfortable with. And, you know, they can listen to the music on their speakers that they know really well and that kind of stuff. And I, I feel like, there are a lot of, I mean, that is really important for people to, to understand is like, just because you're in a nice studio doesn't mean you necessarily know how that room sounds, that kind of thing. So, you know, it kind of makes sense for for the engineers to work in an environment that they're very comfortable with without having outside help from people who don't know that environment. Yeah, you know? absolutely, Mike. Yeah, that's I you kind of brought me back to a time I, I'm realizing now looking back like, boy, we spent a lot of time kind of explaining to clients, you know, gently like, Hey, you know, you don't really know these speakers. So <laughs> it's, you, you know, you gotta, you gotta trust me to a degree. And I, and I want, and now I'm just sort of wondering like, Oh, I wonder how much time we wasted doing it. <laughs> you know, could, could have been spent like actually working anyway. No, but, it, but yeah, I mean, it's definitely, it's one of those learning lessons that once you actually experience it, then you're like, Oh, I should have been doing this the whole time. Right. Right. <laughs> right. Just like, totally. yeah, it's like an accident, happy accident, I guess, sometimes. <laughs> right, exactly. And, yeah. and frankly, there's also the, the benefit of um, I can schedule a little more creatively. You know, I can take a lunch break whenever I want. Um, I, I can, you know, work with one client, you know, in the morning and then switch to another one in the evening. And, you know, while I'm waiting for client A to get back to me with reactions and then I can jump into that the next day. So, yeah, my schedule is... Um, it's a little more fluid and a little more, you know, Tetris-like. Absolutely. Well, I'm curious to know, like, there, there was a lot to unpack from your your story about how you got into this and what you started with and where you're at now. Um, and one thing that got my attention that I'm curious to know is you talked about starting with a four-track, and then you started off a studio that had, like, an eight-track, or you worked in places that had eight-tracks or 16-tracks. And, and now with digital, obviously, like, it's just, like, infinite number of tracks that you can work with. So I'm curious to know, looking back at it, did you feel, do you feel like, going through that four track route or eight track route, like having those track limitations, do you feel like that has influenced the work that you do today? I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure it has quite a bit. Um, uh, it, you know, with the only having four tracks to work with and being creative with them, you know, to bouncing back and forth and pre-mixing and that kind of thing, it just forces you to have so much discipline and, and really, you know, be decisive. For better or worse, sometimes mm -hmm. you can make bad decisions and you're sort of painted into a corner, but maybe that's a learning experience and you, you don't do it the next time. Yeah. Um, I mean, that said, I do remember switching from four to eight and it was just a, such a sigh of relief. Like, oh, finally, <laughs> you know, we can record the drum, you know, we can give the drums three tracks, you know, Ooh, what a luxury, <laughs> you know. And then 16 track was like, oh, my goodness we can give the drums, you know, <laughs> seven or eight tracks. This is complete luxury. Yeah. I do find myself a bit adrift um, working on some Pro Tools sessions these days that are given to me that, uh, you know, where there are hundreds of tracks. Um, 
I can do it, but I just scratch my head a little bit and, and think, you, you know, you, that single tambourine hit could have been shared on a different, you know, on a different track or pre-mixed or something like that. <laughs> um, anyway, yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely, from an engineer, engineering perspective, there's like an organizational flow to having limited tracks that you can work with because you know you're going to condense your tracks and your mix is like you're, you're already thinking about the mix as you're recording it it's not you know trying totally. to figure it out after the fact whereas now it's like people just throw shit at the wall and just kind of you know load up hundreds of tracks and they're like deal with it you'll figure it out you know <laughs> yeah yeah and you know i i can, like i said i can do that but um i don't have a set rate for mixing and i and i tell people i i you know it depends on the nature of the of expectations and the nature of the tracking honestly if you're mm-hmm. sending me a project and it has 300 tracks and you know the vocals all need you know tuning and and the drums need aligning you know that's going to be a lot more expensive than something that comes in on 22 tracks and the vocals are good and the drums are good the performance is good and everything mm-hmm. you know it's sort of like a faders up type of thing and it it's a pretty good mix already that you know yeah yeah definitely there it just it's speeds up your workflow depending on how people submit stuff. Right. Do you find that um, you have like any guidelines for people when they're submitting files to you? Like, are you kind of discussing things ahead of time with the artist so that people are delivering things to you in a way that speeds up your process and makes it more efficient? I do. Yeah. I, I like to start with a, with a, a verbal conversation. Um, I'm not a huge texter, um, sort of old school that way. I, I do like a, um, an in-person meeting or a, or a phone chat just to kind of get a a sense of their philosophy and their techniques and to tell them a little bit of mine, you know, um, certainly some, you know, things I, I tell them are related to what I just said. Um, you know, it, it can really save a lot of time and money if you give me your vocals as it, as they, as they are intended to be, you know, like you do the tuning or whatever, or, you know, and I'll just treat them as, that's the vocal track. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, one thing I also wanted to kind of dive deeper into with your story is uh, Verdant Studio and how you talked about how you wanted to create a retreat style studio, and that in itself I think is a very interesting concept because there is there's a lot that goes into that and. The first thing that comes to mind is that I think a lot of people who are maybe getting started with this or who who, who want to open up a, a studio remotely um, are kind of thinking, well, how do you how do you get clients if you're in like the middle of nowhere or you know you're somewhere that's kind of a far far drive? Like, was that something that crossed your mind? And um, how did you deal with that? Um, that's a great question. Uh, uh, it it certainly did cross my mind. Um, the when so uh, when we were looking at real estate that was within the budget. Um, the further away from um, metropolitan areas that we got, we found that it was cheaper. But I, I kind of came up with a, a notion of, well, we're going to need to to attract artists and musicians from probably Boston, probably Northampton, Massachusetts, probably New York City. Um, and ideally, if they can dr- just drive, you know, maybe two, two and a half hours that would probably be ideal. I think if it's more, you know, three or five hour drive, I think we would have less, less people mm-hmm. scare them away a little bit. Cause that's a, you know, that's a day, you know, you lose a day there, but if it's a two and a half hour drive. So anyway, so the location we found was 
a two and a half hour drive from Boston, an hour drive from Northampton, and I think something like three and a half to New York City. And all and all of the and there's also like local, you know, clients too. Um, I mean, it was a pretty un, you know, pretty um low population area in in southern Vermont, but uh there was certainly a music scene there. So between those things and then the occasional, you know, someone would come out from LA or some band would come over from Europe and stay for, you know, a week and a half. Um was able to cobble together a pretty good schedule and uh, made made it work. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, because I think there's a lot of people that think to themselves like, oh, I do live somewhere that maybe doesn't have the biggest music scene. And like they think that they have to travel to those major music hubs to to actually make a living. So, right. so but obviously that I mean, you're a great example of someone who who did that. And, you know, you, it's it sounds like it was a little it wasn't just completely in the middle of nowhere. It was, it was strategically planned so that you were, you know, that distance away from those bigger cities, but, um, but it still seemed to have worked for you. Uh, it, it did. I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to say, you know, it was a, a crazy success. It was fine. You know, the bills got paid, made some money, <laughs> but, um, you know, it wasn't booked seven days a week. Um, uh, which is good because, um, people would stay there. There were bedrooms there and a kitchen and stuff. So it needed a, you know, a day or two off to kind of turn it over for the next, um, visitors. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. It, it, it really was, it sounds like it really was more of an experience place than, than anything. It, you know, it wasn't just the drop in, record your tracks and get it, go home kind of thing. That's exactly it. And people really have overall really loved that. Um, especially, you know, people coming in from a, from more of an urban area that, you know, they just, Oh my God, my cell phone doesn't work. That's kind of cool. <laughs> you know, <laughs> less distraction, you know, Oh, the birds, the birds are quite loud. I didn't realize birds could be so loud, you know, that kind of thing. Like, um, fresh, the air is, is so fresh. I'm going to take a walk, you know, it was very yeah. nice. Yeah, I do. I do miss it, but it was, it, it, it was also a lot of work like the, the, because I'm, you know, not only, not only am I engineering and producing, but I'm also kind of hosting and being the innkeeper, um, I did tell people to bring their own food. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm not going to make you breakfast, damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Did you find that like that was hard to to balance like that that work life balance? Because at the end of the day, your clients aren't leaving to go home; they're leaving to stay in your house. Essentially, they're like going to a different room. I'm assuming, right? Yeah. Well, it, it was actually a separate building. Um, okay. And that's interesting because I didn't give that a ton of thought, but I'm glad it was a separate building because it just, it was, so they stayed in the studio building and then about 150 feet down a path was a small house where my wife and I lived. And um, so at the end of the workday, it actually was a psychological sort of break, like, okay, you guys got everything you need. Um, I'll see you at 10 a.m. tomorrow. Um and then I would just walk down 150 feet <laughs> to the house and it would, it would feel good. It would feel like, Oh, I'm off the clock. I got my own private space. I can just get my head together. It was cool. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah. That's one of the things that I, I definitely was concerned with is that like, you know, if you, if you have that kind of environment that like you're always kind of in work mode because you right. know, e even those people, even if they're in a different house, they could still technically need you for something like, you know, like you're, you're like you said, you're kind of hosting. So, you yeah, know, people, yeah. it's, it's like, you know, they, they could still reach out to you at any time and all that. So, uh, yeah, I was curious about that separation of things and how that worked out for you. So well, yeah, we would have convert, you know, we would have a conversation and I, I would tell clients, you know, I, I really just, I, you know, I work like a nine or 10 hour 
day with a short, you know, meal break. Um, and, uh, oh, we, we did actually have kind of a, a loud noise, uh, curfew, um, because we did have neighbors, mm-hmm. not many, and they were pretty far away, but sound travels and the, and the studio wasn't particularly soundproofed because why soundproof it? It's out in the middle of the country. <laughs> Fair. <laughs> in the country. Uh, and actually I can get to that in a, in a second or the, uh, a side, a, an acoustic side note. I, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun, but yeah, um, no, go for it. one cool thing about not really soundproofing the, um, the building itself uh, is that uh, the low end would just radiate out of it. So there was no real need for bass trapping. It was very cool. Yeah. It was just a, you know, a money saver and also just, Oh, okay. The, the bass is just going out. It's not bouncing around and creating huge issues. It was very cool. <laughs> That's very cool. Um, well, another element of the studio that I was curious to know about was the open concept style. And like you said, like that you were sharing the control room and the live room, it was all the same place. So when you look back at it, what would you say were some of the pros and cons of designing a space that way? Like, had you ever worked in a space like that before starting it for yourself? Yes. In in fact, that's why I I did it. I I enjoyed working that way. Uh, I probably still enjoy working that way. Um, There was one project I did at, um, in Tucson, Arizona at a place called Wave Lab. Do you remember? Um, No, I'm not familiar with it. Okay. Anyway, Wave Lab Studios was run by uh, Craig Schumacher in Tucson and I was working with an artist and we flew out there and stayed for a week and a half and recorded at Wave Lab. It was not a residential studio. It was actually in downtown Tucson, but it did not have a control room. It was just a big wide open space with instruments everywhere and mics everywhere. And, you know, in one sort of area, there was a desk and a tape machine and a Pro Tools rig. So that was the, you know, what, what you would call like the control room area, you know, or the control area. Um, and I was co-producing and I was also playing a little guitar on, on this. I wasn't so much engineering. And as, as a musician, when I was playing guitar on this project, I loved um, just being able to kind of talk to the engineer who, who was Craig at the time uh, without having to worry about, you know, that you're not talking through glass or someone screws up and they hit the wrong button and their talk back mic isn't on and you're having like weird miscommunications. It was just like a regular conversation. Like, Hey Craig, um, you know, am I loud enough? Is this, you know, should I put a little more grit on the guitar? Oh yeah. Maybe put a little more grit on the guitar. All right. We're going to do a take now, you know, just a normal conversation. It felt, it felt more like a clubhouse workshop kind of thing. And yet the results could be really, really good. Um, downside certainly is that if the engineer uh uh, you do give up a certain amount of control um and especially getting sounds you don't have the the luxury of having the drummer play the drum kit or the individual drums while you like really you know listen in the soundproof control room and really tweak in the, the the tracking eqs um that said, my style is is more like, you know, put the, use tried and true engineering techniques and miking techniques, mic the drum kit up, make sure it sounds good in the room, record a little bit of it, play it back, and then make decisions from there. It took a little extra time, but um, it, it offered, my opinion is that it, it, it offered a, a more kind of a natural sound. You, you, you may be apt to do a little less uh, micro-tweaking. Yeah. That's interesting. And and that's kind of what I thought you were going to say with it. Like, I was, I was curious to know about, 
you know, did you find it difficult to make critical decisions when recording because of all that bleed? Like, I imagine if you have a drum kit, you know, 10 feet away from you, you're not really hearing what's coming out of your headphones or your speakers at all, right? Like, you're probably working entirely on headphones, I'm guessing? Uh, yes and no. And well, and in fact, tracking a full band, uh, I would certainly be listening and, and, you know, dialing in sounds at, you know, using that technique I just told you. But once we got the sounds and once we were tracking, I would actually sometimes, if it was a very loud band, I would actually put, um, you know, those noise suppressing, you know, those clamp. <laughs> I, 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 I was They're interested like, in that too. You know, jackhammer, jackhammer thing, <laughs> uh, ear protection on just to save my ears until, until later. Or I'd put headphones on, but with the sound off because my thought was, well, I'll listen to it on playback. We, you know, I'm going on faith here, which sounds a little weird. I know, you know, like yeah. I, I'm kind of like hearing myself saying this and, and I know this, it probably doesn't relate to a lot of people, but you do tend to make it more about the music and the performance. Of course. And you, you get a little less caught up in, in the, in the tweaky sonics. And sometimes that can bite you in the butt, but often you can deal with it later or often it's fine. Yeah. Well, I, I do think that it is very relevant to people listening to this because most of the people listening to this don't own like a commercial studio, but they are working out of like a bedroom or a basement or whatever, and they might not have a separate control room from the room that they're tracking in. So they are still dealing with a lot of these same problems. And so to hear about, you know, someone who ran a, a professional studio this way, you know, is, is kind of interesting because you know, you, a lot of people would just think like, oh, when I get the space, I'm going to sever off the rooms. But you're like, no, I'm going to embrace this and just stick with it. So I think, I think that that's really interesting. I'm really glad I did it. And it, and it, I'm certainly not the only one. Um, Bryce Goggin has done it in a few different studios that he's uh, run. I, I think he's running one in Brooklyn, New York now. Uh, and he helped put together the, um, what's his name? The, the Vermont band Fish, uh, Trey Anastasio. Oh, cool. Uh, had a very large, very cool um, barn that was just, it was like, you know, three times the size of my place, just a huge, you know, glorious space. And um, and they had like an API large format console in there, but no separation. Um, Levon Helm's place, which is a, you know, great records were made there. Uh, you know, there's a control area, but no glass. It's all, you know, sort of barn style. Gotcha. Did you have like, was there like a lounge or anything like that for people to go to? Or was it all just one big room? Yeah, there, there was certainly a lounge. It had a wood stove in it. Um, and there was a kitchen. Uh, and uh, yeah, this, this, the studio portion was about 40 feet by 25 feet, just a, like a big rectangle. And it was on two different levels. There was some stairs down to an area that had a higher ceiling. Uh, and it had a scissor, it has a scissor trust uh, ceiling for a lot of unusual angles and sound dispersion. So, um, but yeah, people, if they wanted to get away from the, the, the sound, uh, could just go to the, the lounge area and just chill out. For sure. Yeah. Cause I would imagine that with that kind of environment, you would probably want as few people in the room as possible just to prevent people from making noise or creaking around that kind of stuff. So I, so I kind of figured that you must have had somewhere to send the rest of the band when they, when it wasn't their turn to record. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Every <laughs> band seems to have one noisy person, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's somebody who just can't stop talking and like right. that person's got to go in the lounge for sure. <laughs> Into the lounge for you, at least for the next 10 minutes while we do these vocals. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
I mean, it, the, I left this, the studio website up. Uh, so if people are interested, it's not, um, it's actually, I sold it to a, um, a musical family and they're using it as sort of a semi-private studio now, which is, which is delightful for me. I, I, it would have been heartbreaking to sell the place to someone who shopped it up into bedrooms or something. Um, so it's still making music, but if people want to see like photos of it, it's, it's, it's just a verdantstudio.com. Very cool. Very cool. Did, were there any other measures that you would take to prevent like noise or things that things that you didn't want in the recordings from, from getting caught? Well, let's see. Um, so the, well, the, the studio room um, was facing away from the road and it was kind of protected by the other rooms in the building. So it really didn't, if there was any traffic or a big like logging truck went by, that wouldn't be an issue unless maybe the windows were open. So occasionally we might have to redo a take if someone's doing a delicate guitar, acoustic guitar and, <laughs> and a big logging truck goes by, but it really, you know, wasn't that big an issue. And that, and the recording space basically faced an area that was probably a three quarters of a mile of just pure woods. So nothing would really make sound there that would, you know, other than animals and the occasional chainsaw. That's cool. Yeah. I mean, I guess that's, uh, logging trucks is one of those things that most people don't consider. <laughs> <laughs> I certainly didn't. I grew up in the suburbs and then I spent, you know, 15 years living in, this, in a city. So this was, you know, quite a learning experience just from a lifestyle point of view for me. For sure. It's amazing how once you move into a new space, you realize all the things that you've never paid attention to in your old spaces. Like I, I just moved into this room like a couple months ago and uh, like this new house and now, like, there's a train, like, way in the distance, but I, I can hear it, like, when mm. it goes by. I, I get that low-end rumble. So it's, like, things ah. that I never had to deal with before in my old space, and, and now it's, like, you know, those things in the distance are somehow getting in my recordings. It's, it's kind of crazy. Well, that's, yeah, I guess you make it part of the fun. <laughs> it, yeah, it's, it's all part of the challenge, I guess, yeah. <laughs> the, the fun, yeah. Let's put the positive yeah. twist on you, it. <laughs> using more high-pass filters than you used to. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Um, I imagine that with an open concept style space like that too, um, another thing that probably is a factor is the way you would treat the room because you probably wouldn't treat the room as, as, as much as you would maybe a traditional mix room. Cause you'd probably want to preserve some of that live feel of the room. Right. So what was that the case for you? That was totally the case with me. I, um, I, I when, when we built it, um, I, I tried recording stuff in it with, with, with no treatment and then quickly realized like, Oh no, uh, this three and a half second, uh, uh, uh reverb decay <laughs> won't, won't do. <laughs> um, so I put up a uh, kind of homebrew, you know, um, absorbers and diffusers, uh, just gradually until the room sounded right to me. I know that's not very scientific, but it, it was kind of a, I'm sort of a shoot by the hip type of person. And I like to use intuition and, so that's what I did. That's cool. Did you find that that changed the way you mixed? Because you wouldn't be working with such a dead room like most people, like like most mixing room, right? I imagine that it would have a lot more ambience to it that you kind of have to factor in. Well, yes and no. You know, honestly, it really wasn't that live. It was sort of strangely un, unlive. Um, high ceilings, um, kind of rough hewn uh, pine walls. Uh, with some treatment, but not a ton. Um, uh, concrete floors, but with carpeting on, on a lot of it, with rugs. Um, and then a lot of, there was a lot of stuff in there, you know, like uh, pianos and instruments and 
um, you know, I had a lot of gobos and baffles and some of these gobos had carpeting on the sides of them. They were sort of 70 style gobos. Uh, so it all added up to, uh, huh, this room's kind of, kind of dead in a nice way. So <laughs> I, I also don't really monitor at a, at a very high volume and I don't care for large format, um, monitors. So I just, I use like sort of me, you know, what do you call them? Mid near fields, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Mid fields. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I often will switch to much smaller speakers and frankly, I'll, uh, you know, I'll, I'll go, I'll go headphones every now and then. Yeah. Just to check certain things. Yeah. That's very cool. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a, another important factor too. Like the, the more, the more volume you have, the more it's going to excite the room. So if your room isn't very treated for it, then you're going to be fighting all of that. So absolutely. Yeah. Low volume is definitely an advantage there for sure. Yeah. Um, another element that I wanted to ask you about was, uh, in regards to your mixes themselves. And there was one element that really stood out to me when I was listening to a lot of the tracks that you'd worked on and it was the bass. I feel like you have, uh, you do really, really well. You, you, you seem to get really big low end, but without it sounding overpowering or without it sounding muddy. Um, and I was curious to get your tips on, you know, what, what are some of your tips for achieving a great bass tone and and getting that balanced low end? Wow. First of all, thank you for that lovely compliment. And secondly, I'm a little surprised because I kind of feel like I've, I've struggled to, to with that, but you know, well, I mean, I think a lot of people struggle with it. It's always the thing that we think we struggle with the most that we're probably the best at because we focus so much on that thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And exactly. And you know, most rooms aren't perfect. And that said, they're closer to perfect in the, in the mids and highs, but it's the lows that'll kill you. So gosh, let me just process that. I, I can't believe you said <laughs> that. Thank you. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, well, I, I, I was listening back to some early, some stuff that I recorded and mixed in the, in the nineties. And I was surprised at how much bass there was in it, but it's not, it's not particularly muddy. It's just sort of warm and, and, and thumpy. Um, it's probably, I, I probably changed a little bit. Um, I think back then I, I was actually personally playing more bass. I was, I had a band where I was the bass player. So maybe I was biased and I kind of hmm. related to that portion of the music a little more, <laughs> but I, 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 I do notice that on those, of those nineties recordings that I did, um, I tend to mix the bass guitar a, a little more prominently than the kick drum, which is, uh, maybe, you know, not what people, not, you know, not the, the rule of thumb. Um, and I, you know, no regrets, but that's, that is maybe that's something that you're hearing. Um, the kick drum isn't as, um, it doesn't stick out as much It's it's certainly there, but, um, the bass is kind of more there. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I think, I think that that's a really good point to bring up, which is that if you are trying to get that low end, you can't just cram it all in the same space. You probably do need to separate how you treat the, the bass guitar from the kick drum and, and, and evaluate that. Like some people will make their kick below the bass or vice yeah. versa. So, um, yeah, that, that was one thing that I found with your recordings was that it wasn't like the, the kicks were very subby. They, they kind of sat a little bit above the bass, but I think that's part of the reason why you're able to get that fullness in the low end without it, you know, making the kick drum sound like super muddy and inaudible. Right. Well, that's all. Yeah. I, yeah. Thanks man. Um, I, I guess so. Yeah. I, I don't think I did anything too unstandard. You know, I, I think I, I've always, EQ'd kick drums generally in a, in a standard sort of way, you know, like notch out a little 500 or whatever, you know, try to give it some snap, 
but not too much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You know, try to have a nice warm, you know, sub sub there, but maybe not too much. Um, And then the bass guitar, I tend to think of as well. Okay, so so you got me thinking now. My approach to bass (laughs) guitar is that it, I, I don't think it should have a, a lot of subs. Um, so often if I'm using a, a DI signal mixed with a, an amp signal, I'll favor the amp signal and I'll even roll off. Uh, I'll do a high-pass filter uh, on the DI because the stuff that goes below, you know, say 50 hertz or whatever on the DI signal, it's very, you know, it's like flat below that. To me, that sounds weird and it, and it seems to use up kind of, sonic energy that doesn't need to be used up and we're talking rock music I, you know gotcha, obviously yeah. different genres have different approaches yeah but yeah generally um i try to get the the bass guitar to have a, a growl to it that's cool so in that example there of having a bass that is recorded with a di and an amp how do you treat the the two separately like what would the amp just be like more more grit and that kind of like amp sound and the you use a di for the clean stuff or how or, or do you focus on um, capturing the low end with the DI versus the amp sound? Like, h- how do you break that down in your mind? Gosh, I'm not sure how to answer that. I, th- I, I think <laughs> the <laughs> I think the amp sound is 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 going to represent what the musician wants to hear, and perhaps what the artist has conjured up as part of the project. And maybe the DI, I, I think of it as almost like a safety. You know, mix a little of the DI in to create a little more definition if need be, but but probably go with the amp as the definitive sound. That makes sense. Yep, that makes sense. Yeah, I mean the 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 bass amp is typically the sound that the musicians are used to hearing. They've been jamming these songs forever with their amp. Usually, right. um, you know, most people aren't just listening to a DI through a PA speaker. So, um, yeah, it kind of makes sense that you know to help the artists carry through their vision for the song. Use the sounds that they've been using the whole time, right? I guess that's what I'm going for. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> these are good questions. Thank Mike, you. Thank you. You know, like, I like to get me... people. I like to get people to think because yeah, like, totally. No, because sometimes I like we just do not... things by second nature, right? So it's like when you actually you're forced to think about it and break down your process, it's like, oh, is there a more efficient way, or why do I do that 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 way? Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Awesome. Well, yeah, I mean, that was, like I said, like that was definitely something that really stood out to me, especially when I was listening to some of the, like the Weistronaut stuff. Like it really, the bass just felt really, really clean to me and um, big, but but not overpowering. So yeah, uh, it's interesting to hear your approach to that. Um, and and I could tell that you're a guitar player because your guitar tones sound amazing as well. So I was curious to know, like when it comes to creating guitar tones, I know this is a loaded question, but you know, what is your approach to getting a great guitar tone? Uh, well, as with all of these, it, it, again, it depends on the on the probably the genre, you know, and the yeah. end result. The uh, the um For those listening, he's re- Mike is referring to my own band. It's and it's an instrumental band. It's kind of a a twangy guitar, sort of surfy, sort of um, psychedelic um, instrumental rock band featuring three guitars but no vocals. So that's a lot of fun because there's the fact that there's no vocals opens up a lot of sonic space for the guitars to, to do creative things. So for, let's see, to answer your question, uh, well, with the Weistronauts, uh, I kind of leave it up to the, to the other guitarists to get their own tones. They're, they're, um, they're really good at that. Um, they, and they've been you know playing forever and, 
and we're all, you know, we're all geeks as far as, you know, types of guitars matching with types of amps and um, what pedals to use, if any, uh, what volume to play at, how to set the amp, you know, how to, how to, um, well, also how to, how to play the guitar, you know, where mm-hmm. are you striking the strings? Um, I just hit a wall there. Let's see. No, but I, I think that <laughs> everything you just mentioned there is an important factor in the equation that I think people do need to like listen back to what you just said there and dissect each of those little bits because those all contribute to the sound ending up the way it does. So, you know, you, you have to think about how you hit the strings and the volume and all that kind of stuff. Like that it's more than just like plug into an amp, move around some knobs and you're done. It's, it's like everything goes into it. So, um, yeah, I love that. Do you, do you find yourself like auditioning a lot of sounds in the studio and like trying out different combinations of things when it comes to guitars? Uh, yes and no. Sometimes I, I, as a guitar player, sometimes I just sort of know what I want and, and it's, quote unquote easy you know oh, mm-hmm. oh this is the tune i want to do the the twangy telecaster that's very clean and and slinky sounding with some slap back on it easy enough dial yeah. that in but uh, other times it's it's like hmm, what would this song need i don't know let's try the les paul let's try the marshall let's try the vox um gosh i don't know tons of reverb no reverb let's try a few things yeah. so yeah <laughs> <laughs> It also kind of depends. It depends on how much time you have, too. Sometimes you're rushed for time. Like, oh, we got 15 minutes to do this. Okay, go. <laughs> of course. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but also it comes back down to kind of what we were talking about with the bass and, you know, the bass DI versus amp sound. It's like, you know, sometimes the guitar player themselves has also been jamming with an amp set up a certain way. And so that is the sound of the song, right? So sometimes there's that fine line between um, chasing a sound for the sake of, like, your production view versus the artist's view and of how it should sound, right? Yeah. Well, so you're, you're, you're hitting on an interesting point. Uh, I, I think a lot of stuff that I've said so far probably indicates that I'm um, uh, less of a dictatorial type producer and more of a documentarian. I kind of want people to, to be happy with their own sounds. And, and if, they, if they have them, I'm happy to try to capture them and translate them. But um, occasionally if I'm hired to produce say a rock band and uh, every now and then there'll be a rock band that has uh, a, a talented guitar player, but they, they, um, they don't really have a good mastery of, of how their instrument and amps work. Basically I'm trying to politely say that a good guitarist who has terrible taste and, and can't get good <laughs> sounds. And uh, depending on their open-mindedness, I'm happy to go in and try to, coach them or suggest new sounds like, Hey, do you mind if I try a few things or do you, you know, do you mind trying this other amp? You might like it. And uh, usually that goes pretty well, but um, sometimes people are stubborn and it, and it gets a little awkward, you know, <laughs> Hey man, this is my sound, you know, <laughs> don't mess with my sound. You know? <laughs> so. Yeah. I, I was uh, interviewing Frederick Archambault. I don't know if you, if you're familiar with him, but I know he, he worked with Deftones and I remember hearing a story of his that he said he, was working in the studio with them and he was like about to start dialing in settings and the guitar player of the band was like, what are you doing, man? We've used the exact same, exact same tones for the last seven albums. Like it doesn't change, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so some people just have their thing, right? Yeah. 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 Well, yeah, it's, 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 you know, production styles too. You know, certainly there's, you know, producers who can, who can be like, well, you hired me to produce. So I'm, you know, sorry, I'm going in, I'm changing it. Or, or there's people more like me, you know, who would probably 
be apt to like, well, let's hear your sound. Okay. Um, yeah, let's go with it then. Yeah. Well, I guess it all comes down to like those early conversations that you said you have with people too. Right. So you're just, you're setting the expectation of what this, what this experience is going to be like and, you know, what kind of producer you are versus what they're looking for and that kind of stuff. So, you know, you can make sure everyone's just on the same page going into it and that's going to make your session run a lot smoother. It's really valuable. Um, and it's so easy. It really is. You know, it can just be a 10 minute, 15 minute, you know, meet for coffee kind of thing. Even just simple questions like, you know, how open are you to, um, you know, creative suggestions? Because I can go as much or as little as you want. You know, I want you to be comfortable. Yeah, it's so true. It's like it doesn't take much to have these conversations, but by doing so, it really does just place everyone on the same page or it raises the red flags that you need to know about early so that you can get out of the project and save yourself all that trouble later on. Yeah. My goodness. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, another, another thing I wanted to ask you about, I, I know in addition to all the studio side of things, you also work at tape, at tape hop as a senior contributor. Um, and I'm curious to know, like this is a question that I asked Larry Crane, but I'm curious to get your take on it. Um, I imagine that with, after so many years of interviewing people and reviewing things, you probably have learned so many different techniques for miking instruments and recording and mixing and all that kind of stuff. So when you work on music in your own studio, how do you avoid falling into the trap of wanting to try it all? Because you've probably heard so many different techniques. So it's like, it's worth trying all these things, right? Oh my goodness. Um, I mean, I, there's only so much time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I I do I like to finish things. I like getting things done. Um, uh, and I, of course, I like to experiment too. But I, I guess I I limit the amount of experimentation I do if a project needs to actually get done. Makes sense. Yeah, I, yeah. I'm trying to think back. So I don't actually have my studio now. Is really just for mixing and mastering. I can't yeah. really track here, so I don't have the luxury of being able to, um, you know set up five different amps and try them all out at different volumes and, you know, experiment that way. But I used to at Verdant um, and I would do it, but it's not like I was doing it every day, you know? Fair. Yeah. How, how do you find that, do you find that you structured your sessions or your workflow in a certain way so that you had time for experimenting? Uh, kind of, it, it, it kind of depends on the client or the artist, you know, some of them, would want to do tons of experimentation. And I would suggest, well, let's, you know, let's make sure we have enough time for that. You know, let's do, for instance, two days of normal tracking and then leave a third day for just who knows what, you know, throw stuff against the wall and see what sticks or whatever. Um, but certainly there are other types of uh, artists who just kind of want to get it done and might not, might not be that interested in it. I know that sounds strange, but you know, well, no, because it doesn't sound strange because like you said, you, you're like a, you're documenting people's music sometimes. So, mm. um, some people don't have any other ideas for it, you know, so they're not going to try to experiment. They're going to just try to get the song done. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not for lack of imagination. It's, it's more like they've maybe already done that in their pre-production process. Um, or they're a busy touring band and like, no, we can't afford a third day. We got to get back on the road. You know, we, we already worked out all the parts and sounds, so it's just a matter of, you know, capturing them. For sure. As far as pre-production goes, did you do you do pre-production whenever you're recording a band? I try to. Yeah. Um, it, when I was running the studio in Vermont, um, I didn't I'd always have that 
that luxury. Sometimes I was just the engineer, you know, and in, in which case they do their own pre-production and I, you know, I'll help them get the best sounds I can. Yeah, of course. Um, and a follow up to my question about like the tape op side of things is I'm sure that over the years with reviewing thousands of pieces or like, you know, tons of equipment, you know, I'm curious to get your thoughts on the role that gear ultimately plays in the overall sound that we get, you know, like, what are your thoughts on that? Does, does it really matter the gear you're using or is it, are there other factors that are more important? You think about that. Um, I think if you asked me that 20 years ago, I, I would have been all over the gear mystique. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, we, you know, we go through period. It, gear is fun. It's fascinating and it's fun to pick it apart and try try different techniques and try different gear and see what, you know, see the, the differences it makes. Um, but I, I think sometime around the, um, I'm going to say around 2005, let's say, I had an epiphany and that was, and honestly, like it was, it was when I was, I was um, reviewing some mic preamps for tape op. Um, they were sent in to me to a bunch of different types of mic preamps and they all had sl slightly different characters as we know, you know, the, the fast preamp or the, you know, the one that pairs well with the ribbon mic or the, you know, the colored one or the, you know, or the very transparent one. I probably shouldn't say this, but I had this kind of realization that like, yeah, these all sound different. But at the end of the day, it's just a thing that makes a microphone loud enough so you can record it. And we're trying to make a record here. So, you know, like, it's gonna sound, it's gonna sound fine. Like, it was kind of this realization that I, I, yeah, I, and it's not a very popular one because I know I know people love all their different flavors of mic pre's, and I kind of just don't care anymore. I'm like as long <laughs> as it's reasonably decent and and the music comes through it and sounds like music, I'm happy. You know. Yeah, and and honestly, the differences between mic preamps, like yes, they do sound slightly different depending on how you're driving them and that kind of thing. But really, is that difference going to make or break a record? No, not at all. So you definitely need to be aware of that. And like, you know, just for people who are like overanalyzing their gear and thinking that, oh, I need this piece of gear to make it sound pro. It's like that, that, that right. doesn't just happen. You know, it's, right. there's a lot more that goes into it besides, you know, picking one piece of gear, I guess. I mean, and, and that said, of course, I've, I've, you know, a lot of really cool gear has sort of come in and out of the studios that I've worked in over the years. We used to have a, a Neve, um, uh, what the heck was it? It was, it was a, a 53 series Neve. It was a 32 channel, you know, class AB, uh, broadcast board from the BBC. And it was amazing. And I, you know, I was so glad we had access to that. We made some great records on that. And of course I know what, you know, the Neve sound and I know the advantages to it. And I, I did, I sold it to David Barbie, um, a few years ago when I, decided to downsize and it it almost broke my heart but it, it also felt good to be going to a friend and he's using it in Athens Georgia right now at his place um I get to visit it whenever I want <laughs> <laughs> um and and I've just moved on I'm like I'm like that's fine you know I I it's harder to get that particular growly um low mid beefy sound that the neve imparts but um but it doesn't mean that I'm not getting good sounds. Absolutely. That makes, that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And it's, it's you, sometimes you just have to work a little harder to get that sound. You know, if you're, if you're trying to, you might be able to get that Neve sound artificially. Or, There's you certainly know. ways to get 
Yeah, <laughs> especially these days. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, especially with like all the UA stuff, where it's like you know just no. load up a Neve emulation and there you go. It does something. Yeah, yeah you're right. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, it may not be exactly the same, but it's close yeah. enough. And, and and truthfully, most of the people using a lot of these plugins have never used the real Neve to know that it sounds that different either. So, <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah. and then there's the the fact that all all real Neves sound different from each other. You know, they, the components age differently and yeah. Yeah. Um, you kind of mentioned earlier that looking back at your process, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago versus now, it's probably changed a little bit. And, you know, like you just said, like preamps were definitely one thing. Is there anything else that looking back, you would say that your approach to production has changed with? Hmm. Well, I guess the, the, the obvious answer to that would be, you know, tape versus digital. I, I was using tape up until, I don't know, about 2001. Okay. Uh, I kind of hung in there for a while, um, longer than most people. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure why, because I, I love digital now. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I guess that mindset of like, mm, it's dangerous to say this, but you, you can fix a lot more in the mix these days. That said, of course, it's 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 best to get it right in the tracking. But um, uh, the undo button, you know, <laughs> that, that was a big one. <laughs> yeah, that's a big when, one. <laughs> when that became a part of my life, I was like, oh, how did I how did I even get by without this? <laughs> undo, redo, both of those are pretty important, and, uh, yeah, and playlisting and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god, playlisting! Yeah, yeah, that was a game changer. I I first saw. Um, uh, vocal comping done it in around 1993. Uh, Sean Slade and Paul Coldery brought a session in, an overdub session into Zippa, and they had just been working with Radiohead, and I was just I was just a young kid uh, assisting them. Uh, so I was um, I was awestruck by by their their very fast technique. They were using our 16 track one inch machine, and I I it never dawned on me that you could do you know, vocal comping, um, using a several tracks. Um, I always thought, well, you just got to punch in until it's right. But seeing them work as a tag team, they, um, you know, Slade had, uh, had a, a, a pen and paper and he was taking notes and he, and he knew which takes, you know, which lines from each take, uh, were, you know, were the master ones. And he was, he was reading them off to Coldery who was just working the patch bay, like a telephone operator from the thirties. <laughs> Uh, and they made a you know a vocal comp onto a onto a you know a third a third track on the on the analog machine and I and my jaw hit the floor I was like of course you know <laughs> and now and now that's so so much easier to do of course yeah now it's just so common to do that kind of thing or, or people people just expect that you know the artists don't even yeah. want to try to do better like you know <laughs> just yeah let's record a bunch of takes and then you'll fix it later you kind of do yeah yeah exactly but. <laughs> You know, ultimately, it's pretty easy. Absolutely. Right on. Well, Pete, I don't want to take up much more of your time. Uh, this has been a lot of fun. Definitely a lot of great uh, insight into your career and, and some of the cool elements of, like, you know, building a studio remotely and all that kind of stuff. I think that, I think that there's a lot that people can take from this. Um, for people who want to learn more about you, follow you online, maybe even work with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Um, I have a website, uh, which is sort of up to date. Um, it's yc.com, which is an old nickname of mine, W-E-I-S-S-Y.com. Uh, and that has various links. Uh, I'm on Facebook just as myself. Um, I don't, uh, you know, just look up Pete Weiss. Um, there's probably a 
picture of me there. I don't know. <laughs> uh, I'm on Instagram, Pete Weiss 2000. Um, yeah. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, <laughs> thanks again for being on. Mike, it was really fun. Thank you so much. And thanks for the great questions that, that, uh, that got me thinking. I learned a lot about myself today. <laughs> That's my goal with all of this. <laughs> right on. Awesome, man. Thank you. So that was my conversation with Pete Weiss, and I found that very fascinating, especially the stuff about working in an open concept studio. For me personally, I've never done that. So the idea of working in the same room as a really loud drummer or being right next to a guitar player's screaming amp, to me, that's very foreign. So I was very fascinated to learn about some of the challenges that go into it and how Pete was able to overcome that with his studio. And I think that it's very relevant for anyone working in a home studio because you might not have the space to separate your musicians from the control room and that kind of thing. So I think that the advice that Pete shared here is really helpful as far as learning how to deal with those kind of situations and getting great results. I also really enjoyed hearing Pete dissect his process of how he gets his great bass tones, and how he gets great guitar tones as well. And it's funny, Peter and I were kind of chatting about this off the, off the air. It's like sometimes we don't think about our own process with this stuff until we are asked about it. And when you really dissect it and you break it down, it can really put into perspective the things that ultimately make the biggest difference. And I love that Pete touched on so many little elements of creating a great guitar tone and how it's not just a matter of plugging in an amp and running with it. It really does take the right combination of the player and the strings and the amps and the picks and all that kind of stuff that goes together to create a great sound. So I love the way that Pete broke it down for us here today. And I definitely think that next time you go to record your guitar tracks or your bass tracks, really analyze what you're doing and why you're doing it and take into consideration all of those little details and experiment to see if you can get a better sound as a result of just tweaking one little thing here or there. So yeah, I thought that was an awesome chat, and I hope that you got a lot of great value out of it. And if you did, make sure to subscribe to the podcast. That way you're notified about all new episodes as they go live each and every Wednesday morning. And also make sure to visit MasterYourMix.com. That is where I help musicians with creating pro-sounding recordings from their home studios. And if you're not sure what to be doing during the recording, editing, or mixing stages, I'm here to help. And there are a lot of great resources available on the website to help you out. And one that I want to point you to if you are brand new to this, or even if you've been at this for a while, but you're still feeling stuck or confused and you're not quite confident in your mixing process, definitely make sure to check out my book. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And in that book, I break down the process step-by-step -step of mixing, showing you what to listen for, what tools to be using, how to dial in settings, all that kind of stuff so that it really takes the guesswork out of the process and makes it very easy for you. So once again, make sure to check that out. It's called The Mixing Mindset, and that's available available at MasterYourMix.com. So we've reached the end of this episode. Thanks so much for sticking around to the end, and I can't wait to chat with you in the next one. Take it easy. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.